Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. For those of you listening for the first time, if you want to find out more information about the World Business Academy, go to www.worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad topics, along with a special lightning round and our financial literacy section. As always, we include questions and comments from you, our audience. We do have several questions that we've received already by email. However, if you'd like to call in and place a question, please dial into us at any time at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Again, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our listeners and members, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we're going to be focusing on why the degree of petty politics in the United States should worry you and how it's going to be affecting your pocketbook and why you need to be worried about the outcome of the 2012 elections. Uh, During our lightning round, we'll be also reviewing a number of quick economic insights into major asset classes such as bonds, dollar, energy, and real estate. And we're also going to be talking about the unemployment numbers and what they mean. During the financial literacy section of the call, Ronaldo and I will be discussing certain basics that you need to know about the differences between debt and ownership and how they manifest themselves in the investment markets. So, Ronaldo, you just got back from Europe, and one of the things I'm sort of dying to hear is how the Europeans and the British are viewing what we're all beginning to call Murdoch Gate, the whole unraveling of Murdoch's empire um, in England. Can you give us some insight to what you think is happening there before you plunge into our first topic? Uh, absolutely, Howard. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. Um, and by the way, happy Bastille Day for those of you in Paris. Today is July 14th, uh, the date of the equivalent of their Independence Day, uh, when the Bastille was stormed, setting off the French Revolution. The uh, uh, I, I just did return from Paris a couple days ago, where we had some wonderful talks with an Academy fellow, Dean uh, Deepak Jain of INSEAD in Fontainebleau in, the, in Singapore. And uh, we also had some great uh, meetings that we hosted, the Academy hosted in Prague for CEOs and other senior-level executives on uh, a series that we're giving called Leadership for Life. Uh, but to, to your question specifically, and Howard, I hope you're living to hear this answer, not dying. I think words have power. You're living to hear this answer. The answer is Murdoch Gate is far bigger over there across the pond than it is here, but I suspect it's going to get bigger here too. Uh, what's going on is, the, uh, in a show of unanimity, unseen in the British Parliament since World War II, um, the British Parliament basically, uh, overwhelmingly, I mean, there was no defenders left for Murdoch, sent, an, sent an, uh, a blast out saying, retract your bid for B-Sky-B. Now, that's, that's probably, that was a $14, $15 billion acquisition, so it's one of the largest acquisitions News Corp's ever attempted. 
It was in a country that Murdoch controls even more carefully than he controls the U.S., by the way, because he has more political power there. Even though you think he's outstandingly large here because of Fox News, he actually has more power in, in Britain because he has television and he has the newspapers, uh, but the two largest newspapers up until last week, um, the largest Sunday, which was News of the World, which is now folded, and uh, the, the Daily, The Sun. So he's, he's this huge, overbearing press baron, literally, and the parliament, in a show of unanimity, all parties, all sides, said basically this has been something too far. Business, and this particular business person, has engaged in corrupt business practices. And if he doesn't withdraw his, his – and we don't know how high up the chain it went. But they, they remember, the person who was the chief executive of that company, News of the World, during the time that all of the already proven – illegal activities occurred, and there's more illegal activities alleged, the CEO of that is a woman who's been his confidant and who's one of the closest friends to the existing Prime Minister, David Cameron. So you can be sure that the message to Murdoch to withdraw his bill from, to, on B-Sky-B, that message was probably sent directly from the Prime Minister's office, David Cameron, to Rebecca, and Rebecca delivered it directly to Rupert Murdoch, none of his underlings. This is being that would, done be at the Rupert, that would be Rebecca Brooks you're talking about. Rebecca Brooks, right. right. So this is, none of this is being done at low level. This is all being done at the, now the highest possible levels of government. The prime minister's office is involved. The British parliament is overwhelmingly involved. Rebecca is involved, the CEO of, of all the News Corp activities in Britain, and Rupert Murdoch, the most powerful, influential press baron of all time, I might want to add, not just of the current era. So here is a guy who dwarfs uh, William Randolph first in his power, and dwarfs William Randolph Hearst in his craven pursuit of money. I would propose to you, and this is why I'm, I'm going at length to say this, that what the Academy stands for, the World Business Academy believes that we're, we have to take responsibility for the whole. We believe in integrity in business. We believe in setting ethical standards. We believe in making a profit as part of a healthy pursuit of providing a good or service society needs. Even if you think the tabloids provided a service society needs, and I do not, it does not permit the level of chicanery and illegality. So not only were phones hacked and tapped, it is clear bribery was engaged in with Scotland Yard officers. It is probable in my likelihood, and I think this is what Senator Jay Rockefeller in the United States is asking, did the same thing happen when Bernie was running the New York Police Department? Because it appears that there may have been bribes in America also to get the phone numbers hacked of 9-11 victims. That is still an allegation. It is not an allegation that Scotland Yard was bribed. That's now been proven. We have memoranda. And we know that Rebecca's top deputy, actually his name is on those emails. So we know he knew about it. He's probably going to be indicted. And that's the guy who David Cameron took on board, knowing there was a potential scandal, and made his press secretary, in effect, his press spokesman. So David Cameron is up to his eyeballs. He had to get he has to get this behind him. He will let Rupert swing. He told Rupert, in effect, I believe, Rupert, you do whatever it takes to fix this because it could bring down David Cameron's prime ministership, and frankly, it could. But what I'm really reporting is that for the first time, a man of this power who strides the world of, world of politics and media is finally being brought to bear by the society in which he's supposed to be serving, and the society is saying, you're not allowed to keep breaking these rules with impunity, you must now pay the price. The first price is you're going to lose B-Sky B-Bit. Number two, you're going to lose News of the World, which you wanted to lose anyway because you want to consolidate it. And number three, 
we're going to see how high up the chain we can indict. I hope the chain goes to Rupert Murdoch himself, but I'll settle for whoever they get, including I suspect they should get Rebecca, although she might have too much political coverage. That's what, and what, that's what they see across the pond. They are, believe me, the British haven't been this mad in decades. I mean, I see this as almost a momentous event as the so-called Arab Spring. I think this is the English summer where they're throwing yeah. off the shackles of their press dictator. That's I think it's, it's, it's the beginning. And you know what? It's, it, it's more than a press issue. This is really the beginning of people recognizing that if business does not serve society, it needs to be brought under control. Let me give you an example, Howard, that everybody can relate to in this call. Here we are almost three years after the, the Frank Dodd bill was supposed to clean up the mess that was created by the derivatives, right? Absolutely. It's three years since the crash. And we still have 650 or more trillion dollars of unregulated derivatives all over the globe, which we don't even know where they are. We don't even know who owns them. And frankly, we're afraid if a little country like Greece, which is totally anomalous to any other country in Europe, totally different than Spain, Portugal, or Italy, a little country like Greece with less than 2% of the GDP of Europe, about 2% of the GDP of Europe, that little country potentially could bring on another crisis as big as the one we hit in 2008 because the American public and the British public and the European public have not said, wait a minute, we have to regulate business in appropriate ways. And clearly, regulating derivatives is the beginning of that. Does everybody you think on the call understand how that fits together with the Greek crisis, or should we go into that? Well, I think if you want, in terms of, and link it perhaps to our topic, the petty politics of the United States, I mean, that, that all of this, from the, often the perspective where I sit, seems to be this long-term, deep drumbeat about fear, uh, and, and, and fear of debt, and fear of this, and fear of that, in order to allow financial institutions to manipulate the markets. But, I, but you have a much more detailed view of this, so, so well, you know, should, let's, let's, let me do it quick. those all together. Yeah, okay, let me just do this quick. Let me connect some dots. So it really quick, and by the way, I hope people ask questions about this now or for the next week's show, next month's show, in which case I would go into it deeper, which I'd love to do. But here's a quick overview. Greece is a small potatoes little country. It uh, More than 50% of its total population works directly, not indirectly, for the government. It's like it's an amazing thing. It's like they, 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 and nobody's paying taxes. I mean, there's probably less than 25% of the public pays any tax, and those who do pay less tax than they're supposed to. It's 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 it, it's literally got a minimum of 75 to 80 percent of its total collectible taxes go uncollected, because it's having a party at the expense of its European neighbors, and it's not going to end the party as long as it keeps getting propped up. There is no question, not even a remote question, that they'll ever be able to pay back the debt they've already got. There is going to be a day of reckoning. Why do the Germans and the British and the French and the Italians keep trying to keep Greece alive with more and more money? The answer is twofold. Number one, they're protecting about $90 billion or more, dollars, as far as I can tell, in have French and German bank exposure to Greece. And, we, and, and the European Union's exposure to the European bank is even larger. They're trying to protect hundreds of billions of dollars of bad Greek debt that they bought that they shouldn't have. And somebody's going to have to take a serious haircut on that. If they get more than 25 cents in the dollar, they should be lucky. I can't see them getting 50 cents, which was proposed at one point. So if so, I can translate so what you're saying, Ronaldo, for a moment, what you're saying is that the the European governments, primarily uh, Germany and France, are essentially bailing out the larger European banks that have created the debt instruments 
that have kept Greece afloat. And they're going to create more debt instruments, which will guarantee more with taxpayer money to protect the banks again, just like we protected them in America in the last meltdown. And when are people going to learn? When people realize that their government are doing things to them like this, I think they'll rise up like they're rising up against Murdoch and say, wait a minute, enough is enough. But you got you got one honest player in this, which is Angela Merkel, the, the Chancellor of Germany. She's saying, you know what? Let's be real. We're going to have to eat. We're going to have to eat some of this. Why don't we eat it sooner rather than later? Let the private sector pay for some of its sins, the private banks, and we'll just take our chances that these banks won't collapse. And if they do, they do. But we we got to stop at some point because it's like heroin. They keep buying more heroin. Putting money into Greece in the form of debt is exactly like giving heroin to a junkie. Of course, he's going to take it. Of course, he would. He's, he's addicted. He can't get off the stuff. But here's the question. If Merkel's not pushing harder, in other words, if she doesn't bring the full weight of the German state and why the European bank won't support her and why the French won't support her, is because of this fear she has, of which the French are even bigger scared and of which the European bank is scared, and that is the derivatives. That's how the dots get connected. You see, it's not just all the derivatives that have been placed against the Greek economy, which could be in the trillions. There is a fear that it could easily be that there are hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivatives betting against the euro itself. And if the euro takes a significant dip because it turns out that the European Union has a flaw in its monetary instrument, which it does, which we talked about in the show last month, and I'll illuminate further next month if you want, there's an enormous flaw in the euro. Basically, they make it pretty hard to get into the euro, and it's impossible to get out. That's the problem. They didn't design an exit strategy for non-performing countries, and they have to have such a strategy. Well, if the euro falls because the Greek crisis gets out of hand, which, by the way, it's getting out of hand because the fear of it falling and the derivatives have been placed against it, now is exposing the country of Italy, third largest economy in Europe. Spain, Portugal, and Ireland have already been exposed to the contagion, which would mean that hundreds of trillions of dollars, we don't know, but we think hundreds of trillions of dollars potentially could come due in the form of derivatives, which would freeze up the international financial system. That there's two things that can happen right now that would freeze up the international financial system, and that's one of them. The other one we're going to talk about in a second. So the right. politics of trying to protect the banks from their own stupidity and their own greed is once again causing the public to be exposed to have to keep absorbing the losses indefinitely. And the biggest political issue is that the derivatives still aren't regulated. And by the way, just in case you're wondering if the American banks are safe on this one, they're probably not, because I'll bet you, buried in those hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivative plays, potentially, you're going to see all kinds of people whose names you know, like Citibank, Morgan Chase, uh, Morgan Stanley, et cetera, et cetera, because all the big investment banks pay in the derivatives market. That's where they make their money. So it's really critical that people start looking and say, if we don't regulate these things, they're going to bankrupt us because we can't keep paying as the public for all these banks to keep getting healed from all the greed that they're exercising. Oh, and by the way, in the U.S. banks at least, notice that they paid themselves record salaries again this year, even though we're still out there swinging and exposed as a nation and as a world. Okay, I said there were two things that could freeze up the international system and cause something worse than the Great Depression. One of them, And I think you're about to tell us a second. Yeah, the first one being a run on the euro that collapses it or brings it down by 25% or more. And the second thing being a failure to raise the debt ceiling in America. And for those of you who uh, followed it yesterday when uh, the Fed Chairman Bernanke testified in front of Congress, he said, and I'm quoting him, a huge financial calamity, quote, would come about by a failure to raise the debt ceiling. Now, 
one of the things that Ezra Klein, a guy who I respect, by the way, he writes for the Washington Post, and I wrote him an email almost a week ago now, in which he's, he wrote a column and he said, you know, I don't know why people are so content, including the financial markets, that the debt ceiling is going to get raised. It looks to me like there's no deal. You know, Obama can't give away anything more on Social Security and Medicare. And the Republicans are saying no taxes, no loophole closing, even for corporate jets and the wealthiest billionaires. So if the Republicans are going to control this and say you can't even close loopholes on corporate jets and billionaires, and the Democrats are going to say, hey, look, you know what, we're tired of balancing the budget on the backs of the poorest and the least able to defend themselves like the elderly. It looks to Ezra Klein, he said, like there is no hope and it won't get raised. And I wrote an email to him almost a week ago saying, Ezra, um, you don't know the Academy that well, but let me tell you something. We've been looking at this issue, and we're absolutely confident. We know why everybody's optimistic. The debt ceiling will be raised. And the reason we know that is because the 50 largest corporations in the world, 35 to 50, I said in my email, are actually companies that have the most to lose of the debt ceiling. They're the large multinationals. They would have the most to lose if the debt ceiling is not raised. Those same companies control the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They don't direct it. They control it. They are the Chamber of Commerce. And the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the most powerful, organized force of business in the world. So I said what's going to happen is very soon, not less than two weeks, but soon, not less than two weeks before August 2nd, you will see the Republicans will get a message from the business community saying, that's it, close this off, cut a deal, or move on. I wrote that, and, of course, just two days ago, Mitch McConnell reported that it was time to cut a deal, give the president permission, and move on. Why? 440 CEOs three days ago did exactly what I said they would do. They wrote a letter to Democrats and Republicans saying the debt ceiling must be raised. This is not something about which you can politically discuss anymore. You must just do it and move on to some other thing else to fight about because the entire U.S. economy and the global economy is at stake. Interestingly, Tom Donahue, the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who everybody knows speaks for those 35 to 50 companies, on the same day gave a press conference and said he is confident that the business community is unified in this and that they, we will see the debt ceiling raised. So the word has gone forth from corporate America, it is no longer acceptable to not have a deal on debt ceiling. They were willing to let the Democrats and the Republicans play with this, particularly the Republicans, because they were hoping the Republicans could get them some more, you know, more tax breaks, could get them some more, some more ways to use their power. But they're not dumb. The guys who run the top 50 corporations are not dumb. And what they say are saying is, okay, we were hoping the Republicans could get us some more loot, but if they can't, we're not going to risk financial calamity, quoting Ben Bernanke, by the failure to raise the debt ceiling. That's off the table now. Republicans, move on, fight somewhere else. So the Republicans got the word. Obama knows that. I'm sure he knows that. And at this point, someone's going to have to tell Eric Cantor, because the petty politics I'm referring to is Eric Cantor wants to be Speaker of the House so bad, he's trying to stab John Boehner in the back so bad, he's willing to go to the limit to be able to literally say, I'm, I'm going to stop a deal so that I can become the Speaker of the House. What he doesn't realize, because he isn't smart enough, frankly, is he wouldn't want that job if he got it after the debt ceiling wasn't raised. And by the way, he can't have it because the American business community won't let him. And Obama said something brilliant yesterday, if it's true, what was reported. He said, Eric, I'll take this to the American people. If he takes it to the American people, believe me, Eric Cantor will have to change. Do you realize if Obama were to say publicly to the people in Cantor's district, 
all of you people who are on Social Security or who receive government checks in the military included will receive no check starting August 2nd unless Eric Cantor drops his objection to the debt ceiling being raised. Do you know how fast Eric would have to respond? Within minutes. His office would be due. You know, his office has an enormous number of veterans in it, an enormous number of active duty uh, military people, an enormous number of people who are on, on Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. So there's no question Eric Cantor would have to drop the bluff. Now, if the president plays that card, I would say it's unfortunate because it would be the way to end what has been a spat of petty politics. But what you have to do at some point if you're the president of the United States is say, okay, I tried. Enough is enough. The children are going to have to just go quietly sit in their corner for a while. Eric Cantor cannot hold the economy of the entire world hostage. He isn't that smart, and he's not that powerful. And it's the job of the president of the United States to end the petty politics and explain to Mr. Cantor how the world really works. The Chamber of Commerce has already done so. Let me phrase this in a slightly different perspective. I mean, when when I'm dealing with clients, we're talking about, for example, purchase of a U.S. Treasury. U.S. Treasuries nominally are considered higher than AAA, meaning they are considered something that is backed by the full faith of the United States government. That has been the, the, the very earth we walk on in the financial world. It is an investment that is considered absolutely safe and is purchased primarily by large institutions, by countries, Japan, China, the entire insurance industry bases Sovereign most of their holding. Every, almost everything is, is based on the stability of the U.S. Treasury. The entire world functions with that as a security. And here you have for what seems to be, and I'd like to hear your comments on this, what seems to be truly petty partisan politics to jeopardize that standard, which would then throw the entire world's economy into chaos simply to win an election or to take control of his own party. I mean, it is beyond imagination at how callous this really seems to be, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as we pull us into our first topic, which is why the degree of petty politics in the United States should worry us and how it's affecting our pocketbooks. Well, I think that's exactly where we where we want to get, and that's exactly where we are, Howard. I mean, first of all, to call this petty politics is actually to understate the case. This is a level of immaturity and frivolity with real people's lives that even the most callous in the Republican Party has to be somewhat um, concerned about. Now, we know that the petty politics, which was called the Ryan budget, which, by the way, we blasted on this program the day after it was announced, and you now know it's dead on arrival, right? We blasted it for all the reasons the American public figured out it was a terribly stupid thing. That was an exercise in petty politics by a real lightweight, Congressman Ryan. What you have now is a guy who's... um, could be really could be a, a, a prototype for a Shakespearean play, the, the ambitious princeling who wants to topple the existing prince. That would be Cantor wanting to topple Boehner. And to do so with an army of untied, tried, untested young people who just got elected two years ago, and what he perceives to be a wave of support amongst the Tea Party advocates, not realizing that the Republican Party is already claiming its party back from the Tea Party. That's why Mitt Romney is the front runner. It's not because the Tea Party likes him. The Tea Party can't stand Mitt Romney. 
but he's still clearly the front runner because American Republicans who are mature, stable, and participants in the business cycle and participants in this community called the United States of America, they have decided that they almost lost their party and they need to get it back. What can't no one Cantor forgot to read that memo. You know, Karl Rove has been telegraphing what the Republican Party will and won't stand for going forward. And he's been pretty accurate about it. So you know that Karl Rove really speaks for the mainstream of the Republican Party. Now, there could be a real curveball to come out of the left field, or right field in this case, which would be Rick Perry running, which is something I'd love to comment on next month's show if he does run. But the way it stacks up now, the petty politics that has been used to be divisive and to keep Americans distracted from the real issues are killing us in the pocketbook. Let me explain. We got the unemployment rate down to 8.9%. It's back up to 9.2%. Why? Because today there's over 500,000 fewer people working for the U.S. government than there were when Obama started a year and a half ago. Why is that true? Why is it the states have fired people? And we're talking teachers, public workers of all sorts. There's been a bloodbath at the state level. They've been dumping people on the streets, jacking up the unemployment rate. We do not have a debt crisis in America that we haven't constructed. We're making it out of, out of nothing. What we have is a jobs crisis. Okay? And, and nobody had proved it better than Herbert Hoover, that when you have people unemployed, the federal and state governments have to come to the table. They are the employers of last resort. And when you hire people and put them back to work, they start spending money. And because we're a consumer economy, when they spend money, the economy rises and everybody's happy again. And then you pay off the debt that you created in good times from the increase in economic activity, which is precisely what happened under Bill Clinton for eight years. Isn't that also precisely Bernanke's thesis as a professor about the Great Depression, that the only way you get out of a depression, large-scale, is for government to prime the pump, get things moving, and then let private industry take over? Yeah. I mean, that's if, a lesson that's in every business If people business go back textbook. and read what we published two years ago, when we agreed with Paul Krugman, who I still agree with, we said the $750 billion stimulus bill was at least $500 billion short, and $250 billion of that $750 was in tax reductions, not in actual stimulus. So... Where is the infrastructure program we thought we were going to get that was going to get all these people employed? It hasn't happened because the government never funded it. We were $500 billion short, and that's what happened because we compromised. So what I think the American people have to start doing is saying, you know what, Mr. President, we don't care whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, or a zebra. All we want to know is that you are going to tackle the real issues facing this country, and the real issues is jobs. And if you're going to tackle you that head on... Hmm? Yesterday, Bernanke came out and said, or the day before, that they may use other stimulus tools to prime the pump again. Yeah, well, he, well but, but you see, that's, that's, yeah, they're calling that QE3, right? Because what well, they're going to do, they, you know what they're going to do, Howard. They're going to print more money, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he's threatening. Well, that's not good for us. Printing money is not a substitute for a man or a woman having a job. Getting a job is the only substitute for getting a job. So right, but I think it's, print, it's an act of desperation on the Fed because their tools are somewhat limited, but they know they need to do something. Yeah, because the political and, process is locked up in petty politics. And I, exactly. by that, I do not mean that I think the president is. I think the president is failing to lead. I think the president has a responsibility to step up to the bat and stop compromising so much in ways that hurt the country and start getting the objective achieved. And that means he... 
He shouldn't have threatened Eric Cantor to take this to the people. He should have taken it to the people long ago. And by the way, I hope he starts taking it to the people every single day, because when the issues are clear, the American public will understand its true interests. The problem is the president has permitted obfuscation of these true issues. How did we get to a place where we're worried about the debt at a time when we have 9% unemployment? That's, that's Hoover economics. We all know it. And how did we get to a place where we have a lower taxes today than we've had since the 50s, and people are afraid to let the Bush tax cuts, which would restore us just to where we were when Bush was in office, that we were afraid to let those go? It's actually an we, interesting political political point I'm gonna, I want to raise here, which I think is a good topic for another show, that in settling the estate tax question uh, just before the new Congress took office, the, this tax law will expire. Think about it. December 31st, 2012, right after the election, which means all of those estate and tax laws that have set the standard for the next few years, and people think, oh, we got this great deal on either side, depending on their perspective, that's going to expire during an election season. And that Congress comes in, it's going to have time off to uh, try to debate these issues, that nothing is going to happen. Those things will expire December 31st, 2012, without any action being taken. There's going to be a whole new sea change of events related to taxation, estate planning, and so forth. Um, and there's, there's a whole show in that. Uh, well, there that is. We may want you to know, look at down the road. Don't forget, one of the really bad things about this, we have got to renew in January of 2012, not December, we've got to renew the payroll withholding tax deduction that we gave to the working class. That, that puts $1,000 in people's pockets who desperately need it in the working class. I'm talking about the middle class and, and below. These people need that break. And, and that doesn't get renewed automatically January 2012. That doesn't get renewed. That's going to be a further depressive event on the economy. Right. Before we go any further, we do have a call coming in for, with a question, and then we should move on to our lightning round right after that call. Let's so this, one, this one's coming from area code 808. And the last four digits are 0085. I'm going to open up your mic and go ahead. Ask your question, please. Uh, hi, this is uh, Roger in Honolulu. How are you, Ronaldo? Hey, Roger. Good to hear your voice. Welcome, hey, uh, Roger. I, I, I would argue that these are not uh, disputes about petty politics, that this is a fundamental battle between the rich and powerful and and those uh, in the uh, the other 98 whatever percentage uh, that that there really are fundamental changes that have taken place in the economics and the standard of living in the United States is coming down, and there's no going back with China and India. Not to mention what we've been through with the Japanese and all the other changes that really uh, with the standard of living coming down, we're seeing the Republicans and Democrats battle it out to see who's going to eat it and and really uh uh this is a huge power play that uh i think is fundamental to what's going to happen to the country uh in the foreseeable future are we going to continue to let the corporations control let uh, uh you know the wealthy run the country and have these low interest rates. Uh, uh, I remember when, when I first started in the internal Roger, revenue service. Me, interest, Roger, let me interrupt yeah, for a second. Go ahead. Two, two things. One, there's static on your line, so when you're done with the second part of what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to mute your line so we don't get the static holding up everybody. I'm sorry. But can you, Thank you, can you sort of quickly shift 
from a statement to a question that Ronaldo can respond to. Yeah. Wait, wait, no, but you know what I'm saying? I want to say, I really agree with you, and I want to tie together why I call it petty politics and why I agree with what you're saying, Roger. But continue on, please. Well, that's all I want to say. You know, we we you, we had a we had an interest ra uh, tax rate of fifty percent for years. It was seventy percent before that. As you say, it was uh, thirty nine, forty percent when Bush came in. This is a joke. This is a total joke. This is just complete power play of of the wealthy to say, hey, we don't want to lower our standard of living. We want to keep up with the wealthy in the world, and we don't care if it costs the rest of the country and the rest of the people their ability to function uh, and, and raise a family of four. That's the way I see it. It's a fundamental shift, and I want to get your take on it, Ronaldo. Uh, uh, that's really the question. Yeah, great. Okay, thank uh, you, Roger. Thanks, I'm Roger. Again, mute your line now to keep the static down. Thank you. Yeah, and okay. By the way, I, I don't want to out Roger, but for those of you who don't know, he's probably the preeminent tax attorney in the state of Hawaii. He's uh, Roger is a very distinguished attorney with a very incredible practice and and man who's respected by virtually everybody in the business community in Hawaii. So we're not talking about Roger as uh, some guy who dropped out of college in 1964 to protest the war and has been sitting on his navel ever since. Um, the, the, the point that Roger's making is, is a brilliant one. Let me explain why. We, let, we titled this show about petty politics because what we're trying to do is reduce what the Republicans have been saying not because I don't like Republicans. I like Republicans. I particularly like Barry Goldwater-type Republicans. I, I like Nelson Rockefeller-type Republicans. I like Republicans that are solid business people that are actually in the conversation who have a different philosophical point of view, but who have the same objectives and the same willingness to see how the country can move forward. What I'm saying is that there has been a seizure of the political process in the Republican Party, which we have to call it an ace is an ace. And what, Ke what Cantor is doing, and be Boehner before him, and the petty politics of the Tea Party, which is based on the equivalent of the Know Nothing movement out of uh, in prior periods, okay, what we have to do is call it for what it is. It's petty, it's foolish, and it's hurting us badly. Now, the question Roger's raising is why, what gave rise to this? What, what's the fundamental shift that's decades large that's going on behind that so that this petty politic thing's could even bubble to the surface. Because frankly, I think the Republican Party, the adults in the Republican Party, actually now realize, as I said a moment ago, Roger, they let this thing get too far. And, and now they're trying to take control back, and they're using Carl Rove as their principal way. Uh, Donahue at the Chamber of Commerce and Carl Rove are the principal ways they're telegraphing what their messages are. So when he called down uh, uh, Sarah Palin, notice her star plummeted after that. Uh, when he called down um, Donald Trump, Donald Trump dropped out of the race immediately. So Carl Rove speaks for the establishment Republican Party in many ways, and Tonahue speaks for the established Republican business interests. Now, what Roger's alluding to, and he's absolutely right, is that not since Teddy Roosevelt broke up the trusts has there been a war this big in the American economic scene between the haves and the have-nots. People forget what trust-busting was about. What it was about was we, we, we decided that we could not have a country, a nation, to paraphrase Lincoln, half slave and half free. And what, what Teddy Roosevelt realized was it wasn't that the nation was half slave and half free. It was 5% free and 95% slave. People forget what laboring life was like in the slaughterhouses. People forget what, how cheap life was on the railroads. People forget what, 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 that factory workers were shot for being unionized in Haymarket Square. 
People forget what this country was like when the powerful elite treated everyone else in the country the way the French nobility treated the French peasantry and middle class that gave rise to the French Revolution, which I started this show talking about today because it's July 14th. It's that level of struggle that Roger's referring to, and it's true. It is time for the very rich to realize that the owner's stateroom on the biggest luxury liner in the world is still a bad stateroom if the name of the boat is Titanic. And what I would love to have the business interests get aware of, and this is where you can all come in, all the listeners, you have to let the business people you know talk about this, and you have to tell your friends, it's time for us to get active, politically active as a society and demand more from our business community. Why? Because the struggle can only come out one of two ways. If, in fact, the rich continue to disenfranchise the rest of us and basically unwind the basic safety net that is America, they will create a country and an economy that will plummet so fast they will be on the Titanic. You will get sucked down, but so will they. Look, it almost happened to them in 2008. They miscalculated badly. They're doing it again. So what you really want to do is to recognize that if they were to win their struggle to enslave the rest of us and make us peasants once again, that would be a huge failure on their part to achieve their economic objectives. But that is where it's headed. Right now, the, and, and, and I'll use the Koch brothers as an example, the Koch brothers would love it if we could go back to the era before Upton Sinclair. That's the guy who wrote about the slaughterhouse. They'd love to go back to the era where labor was cheap and there were no rights. There were no minimum wages. There was no Social Security. There was no uh, universal health care. There was no benefits to the workers. And they came, they were born, they worked in their factories like semi-slaves, and they died, and that would be just fine with the Koch brothers. It's not fine with me. But more importantly, it won't work anymore. It did work in the 1800s and the early 1900s. It doesn't work today. So what we need to do is to recognize that the reason the country has a problem with revenue is not because we're spending too much, although we are in the case of our military and our wars, and you can chart that out very quickly and see why well, that's true. It's that we're charging, too, we're creating too little revenue. We've lowered taxes below the point of sustainability. We've had two wars that we didn't want to pay for, so we printed money. We've lowered taxes repeatedly since the Clinton era. Look, if we just go back to the Clinton era of taxation, we would balance the budget, have a surplus, and be going fine. And by the way, we'd pay off the debt relatively quickly. So the problem is we have to now tax the wealthy, people like me and Roger and Howard, who are in the top 2 3%. We've got to get taxed more. We have to pay more so the society works better. But guess what? We'll actually make more money in the long run, and the debt will get paid. And, then, and, we'll be have, and we'll have neighbors that we don't have to worry about passing on the street with tin cups in their hands. And by the way, we want to, as a, one of the people on the street with a tin cup ourselves. So it's, it's critical, people realize, the enormity of the pressures that are working the forces. That's what Roger's saying. He's 100% right. Our reason for, ta- for calling this show about petty politics is because that's the distraction. Roger hit the punchline for me. See, the distraction is all this petty politics, this jibber-jabber at the surface. Look below the surface and look what's real, okay? Look at the facts. Look deeply at the facts. And what you say is, oh, my gosh, we have a jobs problem. Oh, my goodness, we need to have the government start spending. We've got to stop laying off workers. Here's one for you, folks. Did you know that the state of Minnesota, because the Republicans took over the legislation there, and they closed the state down, so all those workers are now unemployed, they're not even collecting beer taxes or fishing license taxes. 
So if your fishing license expired, which many do every day, you can't go fishing legally and you can't even pay the state to do it in a, in a state full of fish. So what's happening, of course, is people are fishing and just not paying the license fee. But there's a better example. In the state of Minnesota, where people drink a lot of beer, particularly in the summertime, Miller Brewing has been ordered to take all their beer off the shelves because they couldn't renew their beer license because the state agency to renew it is closed. So they can't pay the tax. If you can't pay the tax, you can't have the license. So Miller Brewing has been told to remove all its beer from the state shelves. They're not taxing beer. They're telling people don't drink it because they won't open state offices over ideological craziness. People do not realize how fundamentally crazy what they're being fed is. And, and there are two Minnesotans did, who want to be in the White House. Two Minnesotans who want to be in the West. Michelle Bachman and Tim Pawlenty. Right. Tim's got no chance at all. Bachman won't get there either, but could be a very interesting candidate if she got further than Iowa. Right. On that note, Ronaldo, let's kind of shift gears. As always, we're running late. We're always running late. We've got always so much to say on all of these topics. Um, let's kind of do a quick and a short lightning round, which, as you know, is always a series of uh, economic insights onto major asset classes such as bonds, dollar energy, and real estate. Is there anything you, we really haven't touched on that you want to hit today that's particularly important? And then we can move on to financial literacy. Well, I think uh, let, let's take the dollar first. The dollar continues to go sideways because Europe has got so many troubles. I mean, uh, people are uh, – look, the, the, the markets have decided the Americans are not going to permit the debt ceiling not to be raised, so the markets aren't even upset right now. But they are upset about the, about what, the unraveling of the euro. They're, uh, they're upset about the European community's inability to deal with that unraveling that a simple problem like Greece is causing contagion. So the dollar will continue to go sideways until there's a resolution in Europe that's completely negative or there's a resolution that's very negative in America, which will come like in October, because after the debt ceiling gets raised, the next big battle is going to be um, the budget, and we'll be talking about that in the next show. Uh, so dollar going sideways, euro going sideways. The other major currencies we watch, like Brazilian reals, going to go a little bit sideways. Um, no real action there. Uh, price of gold roughly going sideways. It's been doing it for months. It's going to continue on. It's not a significant move in gold right now. There will be if either the debt sling thing didn't happen, which it will, or if there's a crisis on the budget, or if there's a if the failure of the euro to resolve itself. So then you I, see I do want to throw in one on energy, which if you, anybody's been following the press recently, uh, both in Japan and Europe, there are decided moves to ultimately get off of nuclear energy, which is something that I know you and Aldo have been talking about for years. 14 years. My first book that was published as a college textbook by Simon & Schuster uh, basically advocated that 14 years ago because I said that nuclear was insane, uh, technologically the most expensive form of energy the world has ever known. It's incalculably expensive, and it was uh, created basically by the many to benefit the few. That said, uh, the, refer the reference that uh, Howard just made, if you didn't see it, on July 13th yesterday, um, the Prime Minister of Japan basically made his public statement saying nuclear is inherently unsafe technology. We must leave it as fast as possible, and they will in Japan. The Germans have already said they'll be completely out of it by 2020 and get out sooner if they can. <clears throat> the French, of course, are locked in so deep they can't, they don't know, they can't see straight. They're in trouble. And by the way, <clears throat> the Americans, surprisingly, have not – well, maybe it's not so surprising. Surprisingly, the Americans have not observed – how insane the nuclear problem is because you're caught up with all this petty politics and they haven't dealt with the real issues. And also because I think the Secretary of Energy, Chu, in the United States is um, 
conflicted. He has a conflict of interest, and he should recuse himself from any conversations about nuclear because he got his Ph.D. in nuclear and he got his Nobel Prize for nuclear, and he used to run the Livermore Labs. So he's clearly got a conflict that he should exit himself from the conversation about future energy systems. But what you can expect to see and will see is that that uh, countries all over the world will begin to abandon nuclear as fast as they can. That's a very good thing. By the way, it's going to revitalize the global economy as well. So there'll be a bit of a hiccup, but it won't last long, and it'll be mostly up so up, up and positive. Okay, other uh, lightning round things. Um, taking the U.S. quickly. Uh, the U.S. Um, real estate market uh, will continue to, to firm. It's not going to go significantly up as long as these politics keep getting played and the and the um, and the economy keeps limping along because we don't create jobs. So it's not going further down. It's not going up. It's it's kind of just loping along at the bottom of a trough. Uh, I think we've seen some really positive things in some of the debts that the banks are now going to eat that they should have been willing to eat. Uh, I think you're seeing some real good changes in the in the in the in the foreclosure market where the courts are starting to hold the creditors liable, which is good. So. There could be a lot of positive news here in the U.S. economy if we'd get focused on the jobs we need to create, if we'd stop firing state employees and stop firing federal employees and start creating the infrastructure projects. Right now, we're sort of like wandering, hopelessly babbling at each other about silly things that don't matter while Rome burns. I feel like the, the Republican Party reminds me of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. So, in fact, I, I, they think, I think it was not fiddling. I think it was lighting the fire and keep blowing it on it. So it's, it's, it's got to stop. People have got to get this clear. By the way, if you're a Republican, this is an opportunity for you to help save your party. Because if they keep going down this line, whatever else happens, the Republicans are going to be in deep yogurt. So go save your party. It's time for the adults in the Republican Party to speak up and reclaim your party. And for the Democrats, it's time for you to realize you can no longer worry about the next election. You've got to worry about the country and start putting the country first and foremost and only in your mind because we are at a point of crisis. That's it. Okay, very good. Um, let's uh, dip into our By the way, if financial somebody list. else wants a direct question on that, please let me know. Yeah, I do have another question, but it's, I want to get to that after our financial literacy section. And as soon as we do that, I want to segue into that question, which is a good kickoff uh, for our second topic. Um, but uh, the financial literacy section, one of the notions we've had is that through all of these calls, we keep throwing around a lot of financial terms, uh, different types of entities, different types of investments. And it's often been my experience as an advisor that most people may know a lot about certain these sophisticated instruments, but do not have a fundamental grasp of what they really are. And when I'm working with people, usually I try to get them to understand, and certainly, Ronaldo, you can expand on this with me, um, that all forms of investment basically fall into one of two categories, ownership or debt. The simple example is if you own your own clothes, that's ownership. If you own your car outright, that's ownership. However, if you put money into a bank account, what you are in fact doing is lending money to a bank with a promise from them to pay you back. Every bond, every financial uh, instrument that's called a bond, whether it's a treasury, a municipal bond, a corporate bond, um, or some other variation on that, is, again, a form of debt where you are lending money to someone in exchange for a promise to be paid back at a certain rate over a, period, a certain period of time. 
Yeah, and, and so, Howard, let me just stick a word in there. So for people to just put this in a category your head that, that sounds normal, okay, so call owning that Howard's talking about, call that equity. So when you have equity in something, it means you own something. When you have debt, it means you either lent it or you borrowed it. So the two categories Howard's talking about are debt and equity. These are the two fundamental categories on every personal balance sheet, on every corporate balance sheet. This is, these are two like really fundamental concepts Howard's talking about. Keep going, Howard. I think this is really helpful. Okay. So, for example, if you purchase a mutual fund, you have to actually look at what that fund supposedly holds, and all mutual funds can hold 35% of their assets in whatever they want. That tends to be part of their charter. But generally, a fund will be described as, let's say, a S&P 500 fund, as an example. What that means is that mutual fund that you own is an example of equity. It owns stocks. However, if the mutual fund that you own or the ETF or closed-end fund that you might own is an income-producing fund, chances are that is a form of debt where that fund holds many bonds or other debt type of instruments that generate revenue. And so when you are buying and selling these things, you need to understand the fundamentals of what they are. Next week we're going to talk, or next session rather, we're going to try to talk a little bit about uh, the nature of these debt debt uh, instruments, I'll call them, whether they're bonds, municipals, treasuries, and so forth, and kind of explain a little bit how those work in the marketplace uh, for those of you who may not be that intimately or intimate or familiar with the nature of bonds. And it's very important that you grasp certain fundamentals because down the road this will help you to understand what we talk about when we talk about credit debt obligations or derivatives and so forth. Those are far more complicated versions of one of these two forms of ownership or debt. And with that, Renato, let me segue into our question. Um, and by the way, before you do that, Howard, I, I, if we get a time at the end, I'd love to talk about one last item. I just realized I want to talk about the price of oil because it's a fun way. Maybe we can end this way on, the, on today's call, but what's the question? Okay. Let's get to the question. Okay, the question is, and I'm, I'm modifying this slightly, and this came in again from one of our listeners who's a regular listener, um, and I'm modifying this a little, little bit so it's concise. And it says, what if everything that was made out of the country was considered an import and taxed accordingly? What if wages paid abroad had to correspond to wages in the U.S.? What if workers in developing countries, actually a lot of questions, but they're all related. What if workers in developing countries understood how they were being taken advantage of? My understanding is that overseas workers are generally paid a living wage and no more. Well, what do you think about those kinds of questions of trying to generate uh, employment in this country? Yeah, by making I, it as expensive to do overseas as it is here. Yeah, I think the general thrust of this question um, is is born of frustration, and 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 and, and what the what the questioner is asking is, you know, what can we do to balance the equation? Because it seems like all of our jobs are getting shipped offshore. And um, I want to make one factual comment: um, workers overseas often are not even paid a living wage. A living wage would be a good thing, and many many companies based in America and other countries in the world don't even pay a living wage in many parts of the world. You just need to know that. Uh, and, and, and they also, uh, laboring conditions in many parts of the world are not acceptable. And companies that you should support are ones that have vigorous audits of all the factories that they use in every country in the world. And I'm very proud to say as a member of the audit committee of the Men's Warehouse, we do that and have for many years. We audit and we spot check every factory that works for us to make sure that people are getting a living wage and that we are a good contributing employer in every country that we deal. Now, 
The question that, that, that I just mentioned is, are there ways that we could have many of the jobs, for example, in that company, Men's Warehouse, located here in the United States? The answer is no, because of this very basic phenomenon that actually would work for the United States if we let it. See, what happens in any country as it evolves economically and as it evolves its sophistication is the lower-priced jobs go to places where people are less educated and where the economy is less sophisticated. That's a good thing because then the more sophisticated jobs, the more that require higher education, are then done in the country uh, where they started. So, for example, in 1776, everybody in America was a, con- was a farmer, basically, uh, or maybe a few blacksmiths and a few buggy makers, but basically, or candle makers, I mean, Ben Franklin, but basically very simple tasks. Uh, and what we found is that we didn't need to keep making. In fact, we couldn't make enough to support our children if we just made na- uh, shoes, uh, nails for horseshoes or we made uh, candles for our houses. And so we upgraded our educational system and we upgraded the sophistication of our economy, so we went into building a manufacturing society. So going into World War II, we were probably the best manufacturing society in the world. Today, we can't make a ship in America on a competitive basis, and nor should we be able to because people with lower wage rates and lower cost of living are going to be able to do that better. But that's okay if we make other stuff here that has more economic value in each unit of production. So see, the secret is not to hang on or to recover the jobs that you shed because you became too sophisticated and your standard of living rose, because that will bring your standard of living down. The real issue is how do we create jobs in America by evening the playing field, A, and B, by investing in our own future? Let's talk first about leveling, leveling the playing field. It is insane that we would be even considering letting companies repatriate their earnings back to America for a tax as little as 5%. If those monies are going to come back in the United States, they ought to come back at the rate they would have been taxed when they were originally made. Why would we create another tax deduction, still one more, for corporate America at the expense of the average working American? When you do that, it burdens the middle class. The middle class spends less. Because the middle class spends less, we consume less. Because we consume less, our economy goes down. So you got to level the playing field with rules. Okay, and one of the rules is you can't take your money offshore and then bring it back for free. If you're going to take your money offshore and get the advantage of cheaper labor, you still have to pay your taxes in America at the normal rate. And we should be looking, by the way, at why money can be held outside the United States by American corporations when it's earned over there. Why isn't it immediately taxed when earned? You know, if you earn money as an individual. In another country, apart from the exemption for living abroad, you have to pay tax in the year you earn it, not the year you bring it back to America and spend it. So why don't we do that with corporations? That loophole needs to be closed. If you were to close it, there would be trillions of dollars of flood into the U.S. Treasury. Now, that's evening the playing field. And by the way, I could come up with another five or six or seven real simple solutions like that, which would even the playing field, so that there wouldn't be a distortive reason to send jobs offshore. Even after you get through with that, though, there's still logical reasons to send jobs offshore, which is because of the economies of scale and the economies of, of a, a lower-cost uh, labor force and the economies of a less developed country that you are going to take advantage of. What is it that we do to create the new jobs here? Well, the thing we're doing the worst in America right now is we're not investing in education. If you don't edu- We are literally right now going to create the generation of America that is less educated and less smart than its predecessors, its parents. That's insane. It's never happened before since 1776. We've got to reverse that. Okay. I grew up, um, as many of you know, I'm in my mid-60s. When I was a youngster, I went through the University of California system, which was one of the best university systems in the world. 
I received my entire law degree, including books, tuition, books and tuition, fees, everything, my entire law degree for $3,000. That was probably the best investment the state of California ever made because I can't tell you how much I've paid back to them since then. My point is we need to invest in education in this country big time, and instead we're doing the reverse. If you want to know what a country really thinks, watch how it spends its money. In California, we spend more than twice as much for a high school-educated prison guard than we do for a college-educated teacher for our children. That tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong in America. We we, we lavish money those, on prisons, but not on our right. teachers. Let me, let me so we have to invest in education. This. Let me tweak this right now because we need to get to our last topic, which is the election. We have about five minutes left, and I know you want to finish on oil. So I think all of this actually that we've been talking about leads up to the next election cycle, uh, and a lot of this is a result of the fact that we're in these constant election cycles. So why don't you give your views upon that, and then, like I said, close it out with your commentary on oil. Okay, let me just, uh, to this caller who called him with that question, I just want to invite you, please uh, get a hold of us again, because I want to expand on your question for next show, and we'll make it a big part of the show, because I really want to talk about the industries of the future for America. It turns out we could create more jobs in this country than you could imagine in industries you'd want to work in, at prices you'd want to be paid, but that requires political will, and to get there, you and I and everyone like us has to take a responsibility for bringing our politics around. That's the bridge to the politics question. It should be everybody's top-of-mind goal that in this next election cycle, and frankly, I think they come too frequently, to each of us, we must be very, very educated, we must be smart, and most importantly, we must not let politicians distract us with baubles and foibles and silliness when our very economic lives are at stake. So what I would say about the coming election is it's time for the American population to start like it has to act like the adult in the room. It has to be willing to educate itself on the issues. It has to be willing to listen to shows like this that point things out months and often years before they're commonly understood. Just like I told you that situation about Donahue coming on board with the Chamber of Commerce, that was predictable. He, he had to do that. Okay, I haven't seen that story out much, but if you haven't, go look for it. It's true. But what we need to do, uh, Howard and I on this show more than a year ago started telling people to invest in commodities. I know of one commodity account alone with Howard's that's had a 75% increase in its value just investing in commodities. Why? Because we talk about climate change. We tell you the cost of commodities are going to go up. Weather is going to cause commodities to go up. Frankly, all of Texas is burning right now. So that alone is going to continue to put pressure on it. If that weren't, but you've also got the floods in the Midwest. So you've got drought and floods going on simultaneously. So the price of agricultural commodities has to keep going up. Okay, that's the kind of stuff you learn on the show so you can protect yourself personally, financially. But you can't protect yourself from a typhoon of bad judgment. And typically these election cycles are typhoons of bad judgment. So what I'm challenging every listener to do in this part of the show, Howard, please take the trouble to educate yourself. And by the way, if you disagree with anything on this program, call us, write us, tell us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd like to engage you in a conversation. If we have it wrong, we'd like to learn what's correct. If we don't, we'd like to have a chance to convince you. But at the very least, we want to be in a conversation so that all of us are getting smarter and we're demanding that of our politicians. It is time to stop watching Happy Talk News, which isn't really news but entertainment, and start looking at the facts for what they are. And when you see the facts in the cold, clear light of day, make your political judgments at the ballot box in that regard. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, 
pull the lever in favor of the person who most is trying to solve your problem, which is getting jobs into the economy. Do not reelect somebody who actually is just trying to increase their own power base. It's important. Find out which is which. They're not all the same. The Democrats and Republicans are not equal. No two politicians are equal. Go look at the facts in every case. Make an intelligent decision. If you do, we might just be able to save the country in this next election cycle. Conversely, if we continue to be locked up with a Republican Congress acting like it is, it is no question the country is in peril and so is the financial system of the world. And you and me and all of us will be seriously hurt. Uh, does that address it enough, Howard, or should we expand on it? I think so, and, and actually we're pretty much at the end of our hour. Any last-minute comments you want to make, something about oil, before we a, sign a off one, for today? A quick one on oil. Okay, real quick. Um, I, I'm going to throw this out, and I want people to pick up on this if they like next, next time. The price of oil was dropping. The most important thing, here's one of the facts you need to watch for, okay? The most important thing that's happened in the history of OPEC, the oil producing uh, uh, countries, in the first time in the history of OPEC, Saudi Arabia lost a vote. It lost because of a fight with Iran. Iran was able to get enough votes to outvote Saudi Arabia on what the quota for oil should be. And the reason is Iran and many of the other countries, Venezuela, don't want to increase production because they haven't got any more oil to produce. So they want as high a price as possible, even if that hurts their customers. Saudi Arabia realized if the price of oil was too high, it was going to hurt consumption, and that consumption would kick back and eventually hurt them. So they said, we're going to want to crank it up a million and a half barrels. Okay? Well, by cranking it up a million and a half barrels uh, a day, that, the Saudis basically were saying, that'll take the pressure off the market. OPEC voted against Saudi Arabia. First time it ever did that. The very next day, Saudi Arabia said, the heck with you. We're going to crank it up a million and a half barrels all by ourselves, and proceeded to do so, and the price of oil fell $4 a barrel. But to make matters even better, what the Saudis did is they telegraphed their friends in Europe and the United States and they said, we want you to send a signal to the Iranians. And the signal we want you to send is we want you to release 60 million barrels of oil, which is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. From your collective reserves, so 30 million released from America, 30 million released from Europe and other countries. And when that 60 million barrels hits the market, you be sure it's okay to let them know that Saudi Arabia told you to do it. And they did. They re and they didn't need to release those 60 million barrels because the price had already come down $4 a barrel when they did it. Why did they do it? They did it because the Saudis wanted to demonstrate to the rest of the OPEC nations that they were still in charge. And not only could they control total output, which they do, but they could control their customers' support as well. They got America and Europe to follow their lead instantly. And there was no reason for the U.S. or Europe to do it except to say, okay, Saudi, we back you. You get back in charge. Knock the Iranians out of control of OPEC. Interesting story. You didn't hear it much in the news, I'll bet. That's what went on behind the price of oil, and that's why the price of oil is where it is today. Very good. With that, Ronaldo, we are pretty much at the end of our time. Uh, I thank everybody for calling in today and listening, and for those of you who follow us. Uh, we will be back next month in August on the second Thursday of the month, and I believe that date is August. Hold on one second. Let me check my schedule here. That is the 11th of August at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. And I have thank a request. You again. Would people get into us, Howard, and let us know. I think we cover too many topics in the show. I find myself talking too fast because I'm trying to cover everything. And I think it'd be fun if we could slow it down and take fewer topics. But I'd like to know your opinion. Do you like the variety we cover and you want me to keep it at this, this broad, Howard and I, to keep it this broad? Or would you like us to reduce the topic somewhat so we can go a little slower and very thoughtfully? Please let us know. We're doing the show to help you so all of you together with us 
can help the nation and the world. Right. Thanks very and much. And if you want to do that, again, communicate to us through the World Business site, www.worldbusiness.org. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next month. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.